Well, good morning. It is good to see you this morning. Thank you for braving the, the rain. Uh, and so, hey, speaking of rain and water, uh, how good is that worship this morning? That, that doesn't connect at all, but how good was that worship, right? Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and John chapter, go to John chapter 12, the Gospel of John chapter 12. Uh, I want to say thank you to Luke Johnson for uh, filling in last week. Uh, it was good just to be here uh, and be a part and be fed for a Sunday. Uh, and so I'm thankful for him and uh, his uh, how, how high he holds the Word of God. When he stands up here, I don't have to worry about that. So I appreciate that, brother. Uh, John chapter 12. And so as you're flipping there, I know Paul has made mention of these things already. Uh, but this week is Ascend the Hill Friday. Um, I'm excited. The weather looks like it's going to be a little bit cooler uh, than I originally anticipated. But right now, it doesn't like we have any rain for Friday or Sunday. So keep praying for those things. Uh, we have the Easter egg coming up Friday uh, as well. And so we're just super excited about what's going on. But I wanted to take a moment to explain to you uh, what Ascend the, Hill, uh, Ascend the Hill is in case you're not aware of what it is. We talk about it a lot. Uh, and so when I got here, uh, I guess I've been pastor now, I think going on five years. Uh, I think this fall will be five years. I've actually been pastor. As soon as I got here, people started talking about, hey, let's do Ascend the Hill. I'd never even heard of the thing, uh, but it's something that Crosswind had been doing in, uh, in the past. And so eventually I just said, all right, we're doing Ascend the Hill. I know nothing about it, but I'm going to rely on uh, you guys to make it happen. And that's the cool thing about Ascend the Hill. It isn't just something that like the pastors put on. It's something that the church puts on for one another and, and for our community. Uh, and so what it is, it's, the, it's really the last hours of Jesus's life. Uh, we start here in the sanctuary. Uh, we spend some time in here. I'm excited about our time in here. Uh, this year, something a little bit different. Uh, we're not going to come in through the front doors. We're going to come in through this side door right here. And so when you get here at 6, we'll come in this way. But anyway, so we come in here for a quick moment, uh, just kind of prepare our hearts, and then we enter to the, the upper room or the last supper table, if you will. And so it's literally not, it's like that. So you leave here, you walk into the foyer where there will be uh, our Lord. Lord's Supper, Last Supper table set up, and then from there we go outside, and it's really you by yourself. We write this material. I say we because uh, there's six of them, and I've only written one, and so we as a church, there's many people in the church who put these things together as well, uh, and so anyway, you, you have your little devotional, and you walk through from, uh, from the Lord's Supper table to the garden, uh, to the trial, to the scourging, to the crown of thorns, and eventually to the cross, and so really it's just you individually immersing yourself into those final hours of Christ's life. There's nothing else like it, and anything I've experienced as far as church, and I've been doing church stuff since I was 18, and I'm 34, so you do the math, and so however old that, how many ever times that is. Anyway, the other thing is that this is a, a Holy Week prayer guide that, that we've put together. You may have saw the one yesterday on social media that popped up, Prepare. Uh, this morning's was Hosanna. Uh, and so each morning of this week, we will have this prayer guide that kind of we're following through the life of Jesus in this last week. And so uh, 
Yesterday was prepare. That would have been whenever he came back into Bethany after raising Lazarus. We're going to read that in a moment. And then today was Hosanna, what we're praying through is Palm Sunday. So tomorrow we will look at what, we'll pray through some things, what he did on Monday, then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, all the way to next Easter. So anyway, that is just follow us on social media there. Uh, and if you don't have social media, uh, we will make it available online tomorrow. So you go to our website. And, and download it in whatever way you would like to do that. All right, I got to get started. John chapter 12, begin reading with me in verse 9. So when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, so that's Bethany, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now, here our Palm Sunday text says the next day. uh, So that would be Saturday. So the next day would be Sunday. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when he was glorified, uh, but when he was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called out, called, La- called Lazarus out of the tomb and we raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Uh, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, "You see that you are ga- so you see that you are gaining nothing. Look at the world. Look, the world has gone after him." Now let's read verse twenty, because uh, it really wasn't until this week that I realized, hey, this is all. It's all going on at the same time. It wasn't just this. This is going on as well. It's actually good news for me and you being the church. But anyway, verse 20 says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Greeks could be interchanged with Gentile or pagan. It's just a general term for someone who's not a Jew. You follow me there? So this would be me and you. But anyway, so uh, who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip. Uh, who, was, uh, who was from Bethesda in Galilee and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and, and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, but whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. For, I, for where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Pray with me, please. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, I thank you uh, that... Uh, that we live on this side of the empty tomb, God, that we're not living this story out as, as it's unfolding. We don't have to be confused by the events that would happen over the next six days, God. We know that Jesus died and that he was buried, but get, thanks be to you that he was raised again. God, that we stand on this side and we, every day is a resurrection Sunday because Jesus lives. And today we know that he is sitting at your right hand, 
as our high priest. So God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. God, we do pray as we look to this story. For many of us, it may be so familiar that we look past it. God, I pray that today you teach us new things. God, your spirit, as, you, as, as Jesus tell, told his disciples in John 14, that the, the spirit will teach us things and remind us of things. So God, I pray for your Holy Spirit to do that for us today. God, for the one in here who does not know you, God, I pray that today they see the gospel. God, that they hear the gospel. God, that they will see the love of Christ and the resolve to fulfill your will. So, Father, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray, and everybody says... Amen, amen. Hey, every time I get to spend time uh, looking uh, definitely specifically, not just the gospel, because a lot of times when we talk about the gospel, uh, obviously we just spent the whole year so far talking about the gospel and defining the gospel and what it does. But sometimes we can assume, assume the gospel and just or sometimes just boil it down to, you know, this is a sermon I preach. But when I'm talking about the gospel, I'm talking about like the whole, the whole plan of salvation that God has. That it wasn't by accident that this Sunday happened, Palm Sunday. It wasn't by accident that he was exactly where he was supposed to be at that moment, at that time. That, that, like, when we began to really look at these things and really dive in, what we truly believe and come to understand is that God had a plan of salvation before the foundation of the world. Uh, that, that, that in eternity past, uh, the Trinity meets together and they have this, this agreement with one another that this is how we will redeem man, that the, that the, that the Son of God would become man and that he would go to a place called Jerusalem on this certain day and this week would happen and then eventually he would be buried, I mean he would be crucified for the sins of the world. Like, like when you begin to read it's like this is not by an accident. And what my, my hope is, is first of all that all the things that I've read this week that I don't just start spitting crazy things out and just vomiting all over you because I have so many cool things I want to talk about. But the, the, this is my prayer this morning. This morning is going to be minimal application, but I want to see this morning is just marvel and awe and of God's great plan for salvation, uh, and that it leads us to a place of worship. Uh, that this that it prepares our hearts for this this passion week, this this holy week. Uh, and so anyway, there's three things that I want you to see first before we actually look at this triumphant entry that we talk about, where many people call it triumph, triumphant entry. And, uh, and so a couple things I want to remind you of before we get started, or maybe I want you to see. Uh, number one is I want to remind you of John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. It's something that we've talked about over the past couple weeks, and uh, I'll read it real quick. It says this. Verse 23 of John 2, it may come up on the screen, I'm not 100% sure, but it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, so this is Jesus' first Passover feast that we see in John chapter 2. When you read through the book of John, he actually records all three Passovers that Jesus would have spent with his disciples. And so John chapter 2, this is when this Passover feast happens, and these people are believing because of his miracles. And so this is what it says, verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, nor he himself knew, for sorry, for he himself knew what was in man. So John sets up this letter or this gospel talking about, hey, Jesus knew what was in man. He needs no man to, to defend his case, if you will. There's this divide when it comes to Jesus. And there's this great divide between belief and unbelief. 
uh, between faith and, and lack of faith or no faith. And we see it through the book of John all the way through. He starts it in two there, but if you go through the next, all the way to chapter 11, uh, what's really cool about John is he spends the first 11 chapters covering a span of three years. And then he spends the rest of the book over one week. Uh, but anyway, so he spends, he spends 11 chapters talking about Jesus' life. And what we see over and over again is these dividing lines that begin to happen. That Jesus knew true faith and he knew not true faith. I don't know how to fake faith. And not genuine faith. He, he knew the difference in people's belief. Yet Jesus was aware of these things at all times. And John's attempt in writing, or his goal, he states, I love whenever the author of the book tells us what his goal of this book is. Luke does it in his gospel. We see John's, it's this, in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. And here it is, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. John's purpose isn't just to say these guys, he, his purpose for me and you reading this today is that whenever we read this, that first of all, if we don't know Jesus, that it will lead us to a place to place our faith in Jesus. And the other one is if we already do believe in Jesus, that through reading this story that our belief, our faith will ever so grow. So this morning in this room, there, there's belief and there's unbelief. There's some who say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. And some would say, I'm not sure if I am. I'm, I'm going to agree with John and say my prayer is that by seeing this great story of this Palm Sunday triumphant entry that we shall believe in Jesus Christ and have life in his name. The second thing I want you to see that I've never connected until this week. The raising of Lazarus is crucial to the triumphant entry. I feel like the raising of Lazarus was, for me, it was always just a cool story. He, he raised a dead man. But it wasn't until this week that I actually realized how it sets up Passion Week. Like, it, without the resurrection, like, I'm not going to get ahead of it. Like, it sets the whole thing up. It was because Jesus had, a, it was a divine ordained timing. And just like, even if you go back to, if you're not familiar with the story, it's in, it's in John chapter, chapter 11. And so uh, Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha, uh, and, and then there was Lazarus. They were real close with Jesus. They were very hospitable people, and, and Jesus would stay with them and things like that. But anyway, Lazarus gets sick, and so Mary and Martha's like, hey, Lazarus is sick. I want you to come raise him or come heal him or whatever. And Jesus just, it didn't happen. As a matter of fact, he waited four days. Uh, for a couple reasons, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but for the, for the Jews, uh, it was at day four that they believed like the, they were actually dead, like the spirit was gone. And so Jesus, like legit, in their eyes, raised a dead man. But, but it sets up perfectly because right after, so there's, he dies four days later, and then he goes and raises him. Then he goes away with his disciples for a moment, and the next time we see him, he's back in Bethany, and it's six days before the Passover. Like, it's almost like he knew what he was doing. But anyway, Jesus waiting to raise Lazarus was, it actually set into motion the story that we'll read this morning in his eventual death. Number three, Jesus was in complete control of everything that was happening. Complete control. 
Jesus was not at the mercy of his enemies' schemes. Even throughout what's going to happen on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. Uh, listen to me. He was not under the mercy of his enemies. We read even in John chapter 12 that he says, my time has come. But here's something even greater than that. Man, this is good. The leaders, the, the Sadducees, Pharisees, the officials, you know what? They did not want to kill Jesus during the Passover. Like it was their idea, like we don't want to kill him. Matter of fact, Matthew records in 26, it says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But check this out. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So the leaders wanted to kill Jesus, but they didn't want to do it during Passover. But Jesus had a foreordained time to die. And there was nothing they could do to stop. Listen to me. He ultimately, he forced their hand. Why? Because he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because he would eventually be sacrificed, ultimately, at the exact moment the lambs would have been sacrificed that week during Passover. Listen to me, it had to be this week. So even if they didn't want to kill him, they were going to kill him anyway because that was the plan. So here we go this morning in John chapter 12. I'm going to break this up into really three categories. First of all, I want to talk about who was there. Who was at this triumphant entry? Who was here at Palm Sunday? The second is, I just call this one the moment. And we're going to talk about the moment, like the, the precise moment. And the third is the manner of which he came in, the manner of Palm Sunday. So if you're taking notes, A, number one, if you ever want to call it, who was there? First of all, we see that there was a multitude there, right? And so we see that in verse 9. It says, when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So, first of all, the reason why so many Jews were in Jerusalem is because Jews, they were, they had, they, had, they, were, they were a temple, it was a temple Judaism. And so, there was a decree, I don't remember exactly when it was, that they could, they could not worship or do Passover anywhere other than Jerusalem. And so this time of the year, this first month of the year, during Passover, they would all come to Jerusalem. Uh, and, and so there's some numbers out there, somewhere between one to two million Jews could have been in Jerusalem on this week, right? So talking about Lazarus raising, and then all of a sudden millions of Jews show up, almost like there's a plan there, right? But anyway, so they came ultimately because of the Passover, but then they heard of Jesus, and specifically they heard of the resurrection of Lazarus, and so they, there was this buzz that already started happening. This dude just raised the guy, and that guy was dead for four, not three days, but he was dead for four days. Like his spirit was gone. He was dead, dead, and Jesus raised him. Could you imagine the buzz that was going on back then? Like, could you imagine the buzz that happened today if, like, anyway, hey, they didn't have cell phones or Instagram or, or Twitter because it didn't happen unless you posted, right? Uh, and so uh, definitely with the vaccine, listen to me, your vaccine does not work unless you post a picture of the card with you taking it. Just want you to, want you to know that. It doesn't, it doesn't work. Uh, so, Josh, I, uh, post your picture, buddy. Uh, but anyway, and so this hype was going on, right? Surely this guy, if he can raise somebody from dead, surely this guy's the Messiah. 
Like, surely this is the guy that we've been waiting on for, for so many years. Surely this is the guy that the prophets prophesied about. As a matter of fact, we see that, that they believe that because they actually quoted Zechariah. They knew a prophecy about an anointed one, a king coming on a donkey. Like, they knew those things, but it's like, they didn't quite catch it. We'll see it as it unfolds, right? They were hyped, surely because this Messiah was the king that they're waiting for. And I really say the word hide because I don't really know how else to say it. When you look into this actual language, it's just like there was a, this buzz that just getting louder and louder. It's just like a big party, if you will. Like there's probably, there's probably some people that were just a part of the flash mob, didn't even know what was going on, right? Like that's what kind of excitement was going on. And if we look closely, we can see what their expectations of Jesus were by what they did. First of all, scripture says that they took palm branches and laid them down. I know for many of us, I know for with the church that I grew, say grew up in, like when I thought about Palm Sunday, it was just like this, you know, waving the palm branches because they really loved Jesus and, and things like that. But when you actually began to look at it, it was, man, they had an expectation of Christ that Christ wasn't all about. Uh, they, they, they had missed it, if you will. Uh, but anyway, so they, they had palm branches that they laid down. P- palm branches for them were, were a sign of victory, a sign of conquering. And, and it really became, uh, I think of a guy named Judas Maccabee or Simon Maccabee, one of the Maccabees. Uh, during the intertestament time, when, Jews, when the Jews were under uh, influence or control of the Syrians, they, kind of, they overthrew the Syrians. Whenever they came back into uh, Jerusalem, the, actually it says that they they came back with praise and palm branches. And so you can see the picture here that, oh, Judas or Simon, uh, they did that back then. And so now Jesus is going to come. He's going to come and deliver us from Rome. They did it for the Syrians. Now Jesus is going to come do it for the Rome, for to overthrow Rome. They believed him to be a conquering king. And they had their mind of what they thought Jesus should be. They had a preconceived notion of what Jesus should be. And what happened is we see a lot of them got disappointed. And that could be a sermon in itself, having Jesus in our own image. But anyway, I'm going to keep going there because I don't have time. This is Palm Sunday. And they begin to say out, Hosanna, which means save us, save us now. And then it says, blessed be the one, he, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. This blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is from the Hallel, which is Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And really that Psalm 118 is where it comes from. It's like this, this victory. Blessed is he who, who's bringing victory for us. Blessed is he who's going to cause us to win, if you will. And then he says, even, that even you know, exaggerates it even more, and they call him the king of Israel. They really believed that he was the one who would come and set up Israel's rule over this world by overthrowing Rome. They were in such an uproar that it didn't even register to them that he wasn't even on a white stallion. He was on a donkey. You know what I'm saying? The reason I say that is because usually when a king's coming to conquer, he's victorious. He's on a white horse. Listen to me. One time he rode in on a donkey. There's going to be another time he rides on a white horse. But that's not the sermon either. But here's the picture. Is that he was riding on a donkey, right, or a donkey's colt, a virgin colt, one that no one had ever ridden on. Uh, matter of fact, if you want to read about that, all the other gospels talk about this story as well. So they, there's different accounts and, and things like that. But anyway, there was such an uproar that it, it didn't register. He was literally on a symbol of peace. This young colt, not war. But they were so caught up in the buzz that they ultimately missed Jesus. 
And I'm afraid that could be said of even many churches today. We get caught up on the, the hoo and the buzz and the excitement, and, and this is things that are going on, and it's like, where's Jesus in these things? And that's, that's kind of that picture of what's going on right here. Yeah, Jesus, here's what's crazy, is that Jesus did not tell them to stop. He was, he was matter of fact, in Luke, when the religious leader said, once you get these people to stop, Jesus' response was, hey, if they stop, then the stones are going to cry out. And so you begin to, so is Jesus just taking this in? Does he, does he just love this excitement? Does he love this praise? No. In Luke chapter 19, it's this triumphant entry. Uh, Luke writes this, that when he drew near and he saw the city, he wept. He wept. So this big climactic moment has happened. And this, you know, this buzz is going on. Yeah, when Jesus gets to the outside, he wasn't even in the city. Yet. When he gets up to the city, he weeps. Why? Because he knew that the same people that were crying Hosanna today would be the same people a few days later that cried out, crucify him. Why? Because he knew their hearts. So they were there. Yet he continued on. The second group of there were the disciples. We see them in verse 16, right? It says his disciples did not understand these things at first. Man, sometimes I feel for the disciples. Like I really do. It's like they had so much information coming. Like, so they just got, you know, Jesus is talking about I got to die. And then so I'm going to die and, you, you know, that's going to happen. And all of a sudden he's riding in and people are calling him king. Like, I thought you were about to die, right? So there, there, were, there was confusion that was going on. I mean, so a lot of times we give grief to the disciples, but it's like, hey, they lived on that side of the, of the tomb. All this stuff hadn't happened yet. And so anyway. So the disciples, they were confused. One of the biggest confusions for the disciples is they couldn't distinguish between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. They really believed that even, the, even like the multitude, that when Christ came, he would set up the kingdom visibly right then and right there. And we understand that he came and he, he set up a kingdom, but it's an invisible kingdom. It's a, it's a kingdom that is but isn't yet. It's a kingdom to, to come, uh, if you will. But they were confused. In matter of fact, we see that in Matthew's account of this. In Matthew's account in chapter 24, so this is after the triumphant entry, uh, he gives the seven woes to the scribes, like, don't follow these people. And then we get in chapter 24, 1 and 2, and it says this, Jesus left the temple, so this is after he cleansed the temple and, and all these things. He was leaving the temple, and his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them. So Paul's from, this is what's going on right here. The, the, even his disciples still, not only did they think that he was going to be one who overthrew Rome, but he all, they also believed that he was going to be one who reformed temple Judaism. Like he was going to come in and make all the, all the junk that's in Judaism now, he's going to get rid of that, and he's going to bring back pure Judaism, if you will. So they're walking out of the temple and said, but man, look at this beautiful temple. Like they're appealing to him one more time. And his response was, I'm about to tear this thing down. Like there ain't going to be no temple left when I'm done. Like there won't even be a brick standing on top of one another, right? He thought that he would be the reformer of temple Judaism. And John says here, uh, back in verse 16, it says that it wasn't until Jesus was glorified that they understood what was happening. So let's think about that for a moment. 
What happened after Jesus was glorified? I think this is his ascension back into heaven. This is whenever he was ascended and he sat at the right hand of the Father. What happened after that? The Holy Spirit came. It was the Holy Spirit who descended. And, and uh, we see that in, in, in the beginning of Acts. The Spirit revealed this to them. The Spirit came down and listened to me. That is precisely what Jesus would tell his disciples two chapters later. When he says this in chapter 14, verse 26, says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom my Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Listen, this morning, I want to just with these two groups, I want to say this, that Jesus did not come to make war with Rome. He came to make peace with God. He wasn't the reformer of temple Judaism. He was the fulfillment of it. Which is why he must die during Passover, because he is the Lamb of God. He didn't come to save the outer man, but the inner man. He came to give us a new heart. And listen to me, child of God, this morning. This is just a side point. Just as it was the Spirit of God who revealed this truth to the disciples, guess what? You have that same Holy Spirit residing in you. It is the Holy Spirit of God who gives us the knowledge of God and leads us to believe and trust in the Son of God. You have within you all that you need to understand the things of God. 1 John 2 actually says, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. That's being the Holy Spirit. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you abide in him. The spirit of God, well, we understand just in this example, this is just a quick example, but the spirit of God works in tandem with the word of God to reveal to us who he is. And so they're having a hard time. They're confused. And it wasn't until later that they understood because of the Holy Spirit. But check out, I, I feel, I, I knew that he knew that he, I know he knows their hearts because they were confused. And then two chapters later, whenever he's hanging out with them for the last night, he tells them, hey, the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going he's to clear some things up for you. He's going to remind you of these things, right? So we see his heart for his disciples there. But check out even in chapter 12 what he says to them. Uh, chapter 12, uh, verse 24. Sorry, 23. So this is after the Greeks come and we want to talk to Jesus. It doesn't say if they actually, I believe that Jesus probably welcomed the Greeks up. I think he probably talked to them. He probably even shared this uh, with, with all of them that are there. But because I never really, we don't see Jesus ever turning away somebody who is, humbly coming. And so I think the reasonable deduction from that, that he probably did talk to them, but it says, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come that the son of man, uh, for, to, for the son of man to be glorified here, he's speaking to what their thoughts are because he uses the word son of man, which is the Daniel seven prophecy of the one that's going to come, the conquering King, that he would be the son of man. So now is the time for the son of man to be glorified. This is now the time is coming, but check out what he says. Verse 24, but truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth, see if you see the gospel in this, by the way, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
So he says, yes, the time has come for the son of the man to be glorified. But before that happens, he gives this image of a seed. And I'm not a I'm not a plant person or a garden person. I can't really speak a lot about these, but I do know this about a seed, a seed inside that inside that seed. It has everything it needs for life to produce life. But it's wrapped in a shell. It's got a it's got a so there's life and then life is is wrapped right? It's, it's wrapped up. The seed has a life inside of it, but it's trapped in the shell. The seed has to be placed into the ground, and what happens whenever that seed is placed into the ground, the chemicals of the soil begins to break down that shell, tear that shell apart, and then the life principle is released, right? That's the image he's given, like this... A seed must die because it must be put in the ground because when it does, it, it is break, broke apart and there's growth. It brings forth fruit. That's what Jesus is saying here. Unless the seed dies, then it is alone. And for the only way for life to be given is for the seed to die. Do you see that gospel that he came down to this earth and he, he wrapped himself in humanity while still having all the life within him? And he dies and he is buried. And then listen to me, that seed began to grow and he's resurrected. And now he is with the father. Listen to me, that seed is not by himself. That seed is with the father, right? And the scripture says that he's, yes, he is by the father, but at the same time he's preparing a place. For us. He is not alone because whenever he wrapped himself in humanity, just like a seed has a shell, he's placed into the ground, he dies. What happens is his new life begins to grow. And then he actually tells them in verse 32 what that fruit is going to look like. Look at verse 32. It says, And I, when I am lifted up, this is speaking across, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. What is the fruit of that seed? It is that all people will come. When he says all people, it's, it's not speaking legit. Every human being is all, 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 all groups of people, all types of people, different people groups, different nations, different languages, different tongues. And he says, listen to me, this seed must die so that it can bear fruit. And that fruit is that whenever I'm, whenever I'm crucified, when I'm lifted up, listen to me, the people of all, all nations, all tribes, all colors, everywhere, they will come to know me. So you have the disciples there. Number three, the Pharisees. I'm not going to talk about it. They're just trying to figure out and plot against him. That's all they're trying to do because they're ruthless. And then the fourth group of people there, and I will move quick because I'm not even to the moment yet, which is my, my favorite part of this whole sermon. Uh, the Greeks, uh, we, I told you it could be the pagans or the Gentiles. We see them in 20 and 22. Why is this important? Why? Maybe I'm reading into this a little bit. Why would this weird story, why would, why would we have Greeks there at the Passover and, and that kind of a deal? Why, and so here's what I think. Why is it important? Because ultimately the gospel didn't come to them first. It came first to the Jews. Right? But we know this about the Jews that they, they didn't believe. They didn't accept it. Originally it was the Jews that was going to be God's people. It was going to be God's people through the Jews that the, that the world will know the goodness of God, that his, his rule and his reign will be through these people. His, his kingship would be known through his people group, but the Jews missed it. And so therefore, what happened? God says, not the Jews, it's going to be my church. Those who are outside, the, the, the Greek, 
the, the, the Gentile, the, the pagan, if you would. It's, it's through these, this group of people that I will make myself known. Even here, before he's die, before he's dead, you see this picture of the gospel going forth to all people. What we see is that of these four people groups, that Jesus knew all of their hearts. And he died anyway. But here's the good news of the story. This is where the sermon, I hope, is going to get at least halfway decent. Is not only did Jesus know the heart of man, he also knows the heart of God. Not only does he know the heart of man, but he also knows the heart of God. And now this is good us. So we looked at the people that were there. B, look at the moment of his entry. The precise moment of his entry. The precise moment of Palm Sunday. First of all, it starts with the raising of Lazarus. Before raising him, he waited four days. Jews believed after four days someone was truly dead, the spirit had left. And so he, 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 he waited four days. And the scripture says in chapter 11, after Jesus raised Lazarus, that he retreated with his disciples. That's 1154, if you want to make that note. And the next time he returned to Bethany, Bethany's two, let's say it's only two miles away from Jerusalem across the Mount of Olives. And we see this in chapter 12, verse 1. It says, so when he, when he, so he relays his Lazarus, he goes into hiding. When he comes back to Bethany, it says it's six days before the Passover. I feel like he knew what was going on. So all these people wanted him, right? But, and because, and we, what we see is that over and over again, Nobody could get Jesus when they wanted him. He was constantly escaping. Why? Like even whenever he was a baby, even when he was a little boy, those who wanted to kill him couldn't kill him. Have you ever thought about who, like it says the Lord appeared, like does that mean like he, like did he appear as a, hey, don't, anyway. Uh, anyway, so, so, so that's Justin's weird brain. And over and over again, they, they try to, they try to get him, but he always escapes danger. And remember, the religious leaders didn't want to kill him during, during Passover, but the raising of Lazarus forced their hand. Why? Why, did, why was he so big about this? Because he is the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In this moment, all of the world would be looking at the lambs that would be sacrificed. And he, is the, he had a divine appointed death. In Hebrews 9, it says that just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear sins, will appear a second time. What it's saying is just as we had an appointed, we have an appointed time with death, so did Jesus Christ. He had an appointed moment, an appointed time. Acts 2.23 says, this Jesus delivered up, you delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of the lawless man. How did Peter know in Acts 2 that this was the definite plan? But the Holy Spirit revealed it to him because he had already come down and revealed it like, oh, Oh, yeah, that was, that was a part of the plan. He came in on this day. Because he got it. So it was the raising, raising of Lazarus. The second thing that was this precise moment is actually what was going on in Jerusalem on that Sunday. It would be let's look at Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. 
when we talk about the Passover, maybe you're not familiar with what we're talking about. It was whenever God delivered his people out of Egypt. They were in bondage there. Uh, and this was the last plague that he had, commit, that he, he had brought, brought, brought about. And this was what we called the Passover. And so check out these instructions that God gives Moses to give to the people. And this is what, this is the calendar. This is their first month of the year that they would take up until it was done. Chapter 12, it says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall for you be the beginning of months. So this is the first month of the year. It's called Nisan. When I first started reading, it was Nisan. But now it's Nisan because I talked to Luke and he's smarter than me. It's Nisan. Got one S. But anyway, it shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the congregation of Israel so that on the 10th day, so the 10th day of the first month be Nisan 10, right? And so uh, on the 10th day of the first month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, and then he and his near, near, nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat and shall make your, make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day. So for four days you shall keep that lamb with you. So what they would do is they would literally tie it upside, outside their house, and from the 10th to the 14th, they would inspect that lamb every day to make sure that he was perfect without blemish. Shall keep it to the fourteenth day, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel, you shall kill their lambs at twilight. So here is the instructions for Passover. So what would happen is on the tenth day, they would pick the lambs, they would take them home, they would inspect them to make sure they were up without blemish, and then on Passover, they would sacrifice these animals. Do you know what day it was that Jesus rode in to Jerusalem? It was Nisan 10. The very day that they would have been picking the lambs for slaughter. The very day that was set up in Exodus chapter 12, the, the tenth day of the first month. Oh, it gets even better than that, church. Not only does he ride in on the same day that the lambs were being picked, you know what happened to him for the next four days? He was hammered with questions. He was thoroughly inspected. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the, all the religious leaders met him and began, Who, whose authority do you speak on? And who are you to could call yourself God? And eventually, I think as Matthew finally just says, they said, I quit because we're not going to ask him any more questions. Ultimately, he was without spot or blemish. They couldn't catch him. They couldn't trip him. He fully passed the inspection. I'm telling you guys, the more we see this beautiful story, it's not an accident. We should marvel. The precise moment was Nassan 10, the, the selection of the lamb. The, the third thing, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, that Daniel, Daniel prophesies this. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince. There shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled time. So the prophecy is that when the decree goes out to rebuild the temple, 
from that point, there would be seven weeks and then 62 weeks and to equal 69 weeks. You follow me so far? I know some of us went away, so we gotta, I'll, I'll slow down a little bit. And so after the decree to rebuild the temple went out, the, 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 uh, Daniel prophet says there will be seven weeks, and then after seven weeks, there will be 62 weeks. So you take 62 plus seven, you get 69, right? So there'll be 69 weeks which equals 483 Jewish years. So the decree to rebuild the temple happened in March 14th, 445 B.C. The day Jesus rode into Jerusalem was April 6, 32 A.D., which is precisely 173,180 days, which is precisely exactly 483 years. The prophecy of Jesus was fulfilled to the day, which means everything was planned. Even the resurrection of Lazarus was planned before the foundation of the earth. He is the architect of every move. So there we see the moment. See, the last thing is the manner in which he rode in. We see that he, obviously we know that he rode in on a donkey, but specifically a colt of a donkey. It was a, a colt that had never been ridden before. It was uh, one, that what that symbolizes is a special place, a special thing that's going on. This is the first time this cold has ever been ridden. Uh, in other accounts through the other gospels, you, know, you see we had a donkey, we got the palm branches, and they actually said they took off like their outer garments, their clothes, and laid them on the ground, as in making like a red carpet for him, if you will. And we see that they knew what was going on in a way because in Zechariah 9, it's what they quote, it says, fear not. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt and the foal of a donkey. The multitude knew this promise. They just missed the imagery. Zechariah says he will come in a humble way. He will come on a colt. Jesus didn't come on a white stallion. He came on a virgin colt. He didn't have a red carpet, but he had palm branches and clothes. Matter of fact, Zechariah even prophesied that he would come from over the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem when he came. Here we have the picture of this suffering servant that we see in Isaiah that prophesied this humble servant, if you will. The one who came to wash our feet as Luke preached last week. The one who came to humbly die on a cross for the sins for the world. He didn't come to overthrow Rome, but he came to provide true salvation, not on a physical level, but on a spiritual one. Man, we see in this picture, if, if me and you were to write a story about this is how we think God would save the world. It wouldn't be by this humble Galilean carpenter riding on a little colt coming in to die. But I'm thankful that God's ways are higher than ours and he's infinite and he's good and he's glorious and he's, for some reason, loves us anyway. He's all sufficient within himself. 
He never gets lonely. He never gets bored. He never has an identity crisis. He never just needs company because he's in constant companionship with the Trinity. Like, why in the world would he do something like this? Because he is love. And he's good. And desires to be in covenant with his creation. Because that's why he originally created us anyway. But sin separate so we were talking to evie the other night she's trying we're trying to teach her sin she's starting to get it and well why did jesus have to die hey you want to you want to get discipled start asking your kids questions and let them start asking questions back like what is a spirit right like we get those but anyway we're talking about you know just the simple of and maybe you need to see it i mean like here's like us and god creation us because of sin and here's what i want to tell you Your sin separated you from God. But God's plan, God had a plan even for the first sin. And that plan, some thousands of years after the original creation, on the 10th of Nisan of this year, (laughs) that the Messiah would ride in on a donkey. A matter of fact, that they they would cry out a Hosanna and that they would leave... does this lead your heart to worship God? That's, I got to close this sermon. I got to quit. Does this lead your heart to worship God, to thank him? For some, for you who like take homes for application, here's four for you real quick. Jesus knows your heart. And what John chapter 12 teaches us is better than you do. And they thought they needed a military victory. They thought they needed Rome to be overthrown. But what did they need? They needed a savior. They needed someone who would die for their sins. To pay the punishment. To bear the wrath of God. Listen to me. Jesus knows your heart this morning. You don't have to hide it. Matter of fact, he knows it greater than you do. And child of God, he's greater than your heart. What they needed was a merciful savior, not a conquering king. This morning, I want to tell you that whatever is going on, whatever you may feel like you have to try to hide or overcompensate for, that that Jesus came and died for you. These people who yelled Hosanna, they yelled crucify him, he, he died for them. And if any, if any one of those people would repent and believe, then, then Jesus would forgive them on the spot. With the Pharisees who sought to kill him, he died for their sin as well. And if they would have cried out, he would save them. Think about the worst person in human history. His sacrifice is sufficient to forgive all those sins. We try to fill, we think we know what our heart needs. Oftentimes we try to fill it with busyness and this and that, relationships, this, that, and the other. And what happens is we find ourselves like the woman at the well in John chapter 4, that this well doesn't satisfy, so I'm going to go to the next relationship. I'm going to keep going to different wells. I'm going to go to different waters to kind of try to keep drinking. Because I'm thirsty, not to be try to be cool when I say I'm thirsty. Like uh, there's something going on and I, I got to fill this void. I got to feel what's going on in my heart. I've got I've to understand. Listen to me. The lady's issue is that she was drinking from the wrong well. 
Because Jesus says, I'm the fount of living waters. Hey, listen to me. Your heart, Jesus knows it. And only he, only he can forgive and bring peace. The second thing that I want you to see in context, because these people had a desire for what they wanted Jesus to be. Here's the second point is that Jesus is first the satisfier of God's wrath before he is a satisfier of my heart. What he's saying is, listen, ultimately, this is what I'm trying to say. They wanted, they wanted him to be a conquering king, but first he had to die for their sins. They had to, he had to do something with sin first before he could feel their loneliness, before he could feel these things. He needed to satisfy the wrath of God that was directed towards them. And a relationship with Jesus starts with believing, as elementary as this, that he died for our sin. What is what does Paul write in 1 Corinthians 15? I would remind you of the brothers, right, of the gospel, right? What does he say? That Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. That he was buried and that he was raised again in accordance with the scripture. That's how a relationship with Jesus starts. First of all, we deal, he deals with sin. Yes, he can heal a broken heart, but he has to give us a new one first. Jesus wasn't the reformer of old temple worship. He was the fulfillment of it. Hey, listen to me. For the relationship with Jesus, it's free. This coming Friday, listen to me, all week long, listen, this past month, we have been searching our house, trying to get rid of leaven. We, that's what they would do for a month before Passover. Literally, they would, they would clean under the, their couches or whatever they had. There could be no leaven to, to, to create these imperfections or, or to, or to uh, defile them from partaking in Passover. Listen, to me. All week long, we don't have to do that. We don't have to go today and go to the go to downtown Laurel and, and try to find a lamb. <laughs> we don't have to go and tie it up at our house and inspect it for four days. Because if, if we sacrifice this thing and it's without it it's actually got spots and blemishes, that's gonna be bad. Why? Because 2,000 years ago, the Lamb of God rolled into Jerusalem, the last Lamb that could ever be chosen because He is the Lamb, and He was inspected, He was spotless, He was perfect, and He was slain. And now today, He says, just call upon me. It's free. Listen to me. <laughs> He's the, the, one of the beautiful things, I told Luke this week, I've always liked prophecies. It's the fulfillment of prophecy. It increases my faith. Oh man, if you start studying like the rituals, things that, 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 that God had told the Jews to do, all it is is a picture of the Messiah to come. He, he, he fulfills all of it. And if it isn't fulfilled yet, it will be when he comes back. Oh man, listen to me. He knows your heart and he has satisfied the wrath of God. And scripture says that in him there's no condemnation. Oh, would you come to him? Would you believe in him? He knows the difference between belief and unbelief. You can't hide it. You can't fake it. 
You can fool me. You can front somebody else. Oh, but he knows. And this morning, is he calling you? Hey, truly believe in me. Place your trust in me. The third thing is the church is God's chosen people to spread this message to the world. We see that picture of the Greeks. Maybe I'm just adding this because I feel like I need to, but I'm going to do it anyway. If I'm wrong, you can on to me later. It came to the Jews first, but the Greeks were there. We know now that God has formed a new people, and his people is called the church, and we are the instruments for sharing the good news. So I want to I I ask you, I want to encourage you. I would, I would ask you to invite someone in your life who doesn't believe to ascend the hill. Why? Could we come more face to face with a cross? Could we immerse someone? We have this picture to, to win someone who's lost. We have to water down and give a cliff note to, for someone. And so this is what it means to be a Christian, if you will. And it's just a small, acceptable, polished version of what Christianity is. And then we bring them into the church and it's like, what is all this that's going on? What happens if we just begin to immerse our lost friends in what it looks like to be the church? What if we just begin to immerse our lost friends into the story of the cross? The nastiness of it, the realness of it. So I would ask you to invite someone. Number five, somebody needs to hear this morning, God's plan always goes according to plan. I just, that has to be a point because <laughs> it went according to plan. And so somebody needs to hear this morning that God's plan always goes according to plan, even when he uses evil to fulfill his purposes. The most evil day in human history is not, listen to me, this, this isn't even for me, this is a John Piper thing. The most evil day in human history isn't when babies are aborted. Now that's terrible. Think about, think about that. That's, the, that's one of the most horrendous things in our society. The most horrendous day in human history was whenever the perfect spotless Lamb of God, this, the perfect Jesus, purer than 10 million babies, was killed. That's the most evil day in human history. Yet God took that day and brought some and purchased salvation for all who would believe. Be comforted that God's plan always goes according to plan. And this is my last statement. If he knew before the foundation of the world where Jesus would be born, where he would live, on what day he would enter Jerusalem, on what day he would ride in, from where he would ride from, and on what day he would die, I think we can trust him in the details of our lives. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for your good news. That's greater than any, <laughs> any love story that we could read, any movie that we could watch. God, we thank you for the salvation that you purchased. God, we thank you on this Palm Sunday that we look back and see that, that everything goes, was going according to plan. God, I thank you on this Sunday that we already know the truth of next Sunday. 
God, I pray that as we enter into this worship moment where we sing of what you have done, oh God, that we won't just treat it as if it's just something we've heard a million times. Oh God, but that we will glory in your great story when we sing of how Jesus paid it all. Before the band leads us, I'm going to ask you to stay in the posture that you're in. We talked about how the, the Jews up until Palm Sunday, really, for a, really about a month before Passover, they would just be spending time cleaning as much as they can, preparing for Passover. And listen, we know that Passover is, is now for us, is just something we look back upon, we remember. But what I want us to do as a church, I want to make sure that we are prepared. We are preparing our hearts to remember Good Friday, to celebrate on Easter Sunday. And so that's why we're doing this, this prayer guide this week. Each day is going to be centered around this. Is, actually, I even wrote the prayer for us to pray. We want, we want, we want, we want this Easter for God to renew the joy of our salvation. We want God to use it to draw people who don't know him to himself. So will you spend just for the next few moments asking God to search your heart, to know your heart, to reveal it? Hey, if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, you say, Justin, I want to believe. I'll be standing right down here by Ashley. You're welcome to come and grab me. We can talk and we can pray. You spend time with the Lord for just a few moments and then the band will lead us.